The song you are now listening to is sung in... Actually, let me give you clues and you try to guess. First, it's a Northern European language. Second, it belongs to the Finno-Ugric family of languages, meaning it's somewhat related to Estonian and Finnish. Third, the language has been proclaimed dead on June the 6th, 2013, after the death of its last native speaker. If you would like to take a second more to think about it, stop the stream here, as I will be revealing the correct answer within the moments. If you have guessed Livonia, congratulations, and hats off, I'm fairly certain you are in the minority. Livonian was one of the languages natively spoken along the eastern and western banks of the Gulf of Riga, now in the Republic of Latvia, northeastern Europe. As already mentioned, it is a member of a Finno-Ugric language family, so relatively close to Estonian and Finnish. And also, it was declared dead in 2013. But what does the description dead really mean when applied to a language? I mean, just a few seconds ago, you've heard the recording of it. It sounded well and alive. Well, we will tell you all about it in this episode. We will explain when languages are considered dead, how they die, and also, and maybe most importantly, how can this be reversed? How a language can be revived? Originally, this was supposed to be amongst the first episodes of the season. However, after conducting the interview with the guests you're going to hear from today, we realized that these topics that we are touching on here, well, they have very profound takeaway messages that are suited for somewhat of a wrap-up of what we talked about in the season already. I hope you'll find the takeaways equally powerful. And now, let's buckle up and get right into it. The language map of the world, although sometimes looking static, is very fluid. Languages mix and override one another constantly, and today we will talk about the soldiers that have fallen in this battle. The dead languages. But what does it really mean for a language to be dead? Well, a language is considered dead if it is no longer the native language of any community. Hence, languages die with their last native speakers. Now, there can still be speakers of the language remaining. An example of this is Latin. Latin is officially a dead language, and sure, it is still used for religious purposes, and was even regarded as the official lingua franca of the Vatican until being replaced by Italian in 2014. But no community in the world actively uses it as their native language. But what happens if a language no longer has any native speakers? Well. If no more speakers of a language remain, the language is considered to be either a. a corpus language, meaning it has been preserved in literature, such as with the case of, say, ancient Greek or Old English, or b. completely extinct. Now, following these definitions, we can make one simplifying observation. Extinct and corpus languages can both also be called dead, so a language can either be alive, dead, dead and extinct, 
or dead and corpus. With the terminology out of the way, let's talk about how languages die. And for this, I would like to introduce you to today's guest and expert on the matter, Gregory Anderson. Gregory is a well-renowned linguist and a founder of the Living Tongues Institute of Endangered Languages, which we will talk about more towards the ending of our episode. As a researcher, he is currently specializing mainly in Siberian and tribal Indian languages, but also in Native American, Pacific and African languages. As he himself put it, he has spent over 30 years in the game, and that time has rewarded him. This is what he answered when we asked him how many languages he speaks at the ending of our interview. Yeah, well, it's a question that I usually sidestep um, because when I, anyone asks me how many, this is a standard question linguists get, how many languages do you speak, right? Fluently, where I can be as fully expressive as I want to be, I'd say only English. But, I, you know, my Russian is pretty good. My German's pretty good. My French is passable. Um, my Spanish is okay. I, I know like half a dozen Siberian languages. Um, I've studied like another another half a dozen Indian tribal languages. You know, I've, I've dabbled in, in quite a few other ones. And I've had formal classes in 37 different languages, but that doesn't include most of the um, ones I've spent my life researching, which I also can speak pretty well. So, I mean, my, I have semi-functional knowledge of, you know, at least 50 languages. So. The interviews were conducted during the COVID pandemic over Zoom. So please excuse the sound quality where it is lacking. It was a real pleasure to speak to Greg, or maybe should I say to listen to Greg, because in the more technical part of the interview, he basically ticked all of our question boxes with us only asking two questions. And we will present all of it here with hardly any interruptions. The first question we asked him was, how do languages die? So basically there's effectively two broad categories of the way languages die. Uh, one would be sudden death and one would be gradual death. Sudden death is quite rare and gradual death is what is the, is the norm. And so a, a sudden death basically comes in two forms and in recorded history we, we know of a few instances where a catastrophic event basically eliminated the speaker population of a language and with it that language more or less ceased to exist. Now in all of those cases, there's likely to be survivors and likely to be remnants of the community that extended, you know, for the lifetime of at least the speakers of, of those people that managed to survive. But um, the vast majority of speakers died in a catastrophic event. And so the first type that I mentioned would be natural disasters. And there are a couple of different examples of this. One would be the volcanic explosion that happened in Tambora in modern Indonesia which basically wiped out the Tamboran language in one moment. And there, of course, were a few speakers that, that survived, but for the most part, that entire speech community ceased to exist on one day in 1815. So too, uh, more recently in uh, July of 1998, there was a catastrophic earthquake and landslide and then a tsunami that happened in Northern New Guinea that basically wiped out a, a couple of different languages, possibly as many as four completely overnight. Sisano and Arab Sisano were two of these languages that were wiped out because the entire community was inundated by a tsunami and only people that weren't present in the village that day survived, basically. There, there were no survivors uh, or there were very, very few survivors and the survivors dispersed to other communities and the language basically ceased to have a, 
a community to use it at that point. So th those are kind of natural disasters that lead to sudden death with language. Um, there are also a couple of recorded instances of human uh, orchestrated sudden death, so massacres of communities. So probably the most famous historically is the Shisha or the Tangut Empire language that the Mongols completely wiped out in 1227 uh, as a revenge for a mistreatment of a young Chinggis Khan when who was captured by them. And, and he vowed one day to eliminate the Shisha from history. And he basically almost did. They were forgotten in history until the 20th century when various archeological and linguistic records uh, were unearthed that, that people managed to remember the Shisha. More recently in modern history, there was a horrific massacre that occurred in El Salvador in, I believe, 1932, uh, where the Cacapera and the Lenca people were effectively massacred en masse, and that effectively ended those as functional languages as well. So, so those are sort of a couple of examples of what we might call sudden glottoside or sudden language death. But more frequently, what we're looking at when we're looking at uh, language death in a broader perspective is a gradual decline. And these are uh, due to social factors, okay? So, and now there's different paradigms for that that lead to that. And gradual is a relative term. So there are some that you might call sudden because it's relatively fast, maybe a couple of generations. And then other ones, uh, it's more of a four or five, six generational phenomenon where a language community uh, starts adopting another language and eventually the people who were the original language users die off. And then, you know, you have a generation where you have semi-speakers and rememberers, and then eventually you don't have anything other than maybe a few words that people, you know, have borrowed into the dominant language of the area that they shifted to. So this is your standard scenario that we find across the world today, but it's caused by different factors, which I'll talk about in a second. So that even that's not a one size fits all scenario. Um, now, there are some more sudden, very short, let's say, narrow windows of where we went from initial triggering events. Typically, this would be associated with conquest or uh, colonization of some sort, uh, where you go from contact to extinction in a relatively short time. So the languages of Tasmania would fall into a category like this. They were first contacted, I believe, in 1803. And I think the last speaker of a Tasmanian language died in 1876. So it's roughly 75 years that they went from contact to, to, to extinction. There's a few other examples. The Cayuse language here in Oregon is another one that the Lewis and Clark expedition was effectively the first uh, in the early 19th century was effectively the first contact they had with the external vector that was gonna trigger this catastrophic social shift. And effectively, the language was gone by the end of the 19th century, although I believe the last speakers didn't die until like the early 20th century, maybe the 1930s or something. So this would be a relatively short period of from initial contact to non-existence. But more typically, what we're finding is a process of that shift unfolding over multiple generations. And the causes of this are varied. You know, having just discussed some colonialist situations that is if you look at a, a map of the world's languages today and you look at the areas which are most severely endangered all of them share one thing in common they share the fact that there was a very aggressive colonialist paradigm that started sometime a couple of hundred you know a few hundred years ago up to a couple hundred years ago and progressed uh, rather 
dramatically across the, the communities that were in uh, place at that initial contact period. So this would be what we find throughout North America. So Canada and the United States, of course, are canonically like this. And Siberia, certainly within Russia, is a, is a canonical colonialist uh, situation. And the language endangerment there is quite severe. Most of the languages are nearly extinct there. Brazil, uh, moving in an east to west fashion. So Eastern Brazil is, is largely depopulated of indigenous languages, but the, that process is still ongoing in the Western Amazonian rainforest area. So Mexico and Argentina, you have a more of a center periphery. Uh, so in the center, the languages were eliminated relatively early, but that process is still ongoing in the periphery. So that's wave, you know, sort of in a wave out from the, the central colonial area. Australia is another classic and canonical uh, settlement colony situation. So these are settlement colonies where, where you're finding conquerors coming and replacing the population and trying to create new versions of their old homelands. Okay, so settlement colonies are, are where you have most severe language endangerment. Um, I would also personally throw Sudan into this category. Maybe other people would disagree with that, but the Arab colonization of Northern Sudan, which went from basically north uh, east to uh, across the west into the south, still ongoing in the horrific things going on in Sudan even today in the Nuba Mountains. So this is a canonical and classic colonialist expansion. It just wasn't Europeans on boats that got in and moved somewhere else. It was uh, Arabs over land, but it's still the same process. Um, and when you're looking at the, the social impact and the linguistic impact of, of, a, of a community. So that that's your sort of, in the mindset of most people, your standard paradigm or language shift. But um, that's not the only one. And so there are other more varied types of scenarios that are happening, that have happened or still and are still happening. So one thing that we've seen in the post-World War II period, just to take a random date of mid-20th century, uh, is the emergence of nation states that rally around a national language identity. And in uh, the majority of these instances, it is the language of the ethnic majority, the dominant, but also majority population. Now this would be true of basically all of Europe, almost in the entirety of European countries uh, would fall into that category. But also it's very common in Southeast Asia and in Eastern Asia, so China, certainly Thailand, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar, or Burma, depending on which way you want to call it, those all basically deal with the same situation. In the Eastern Asian scenario, uh, you have a, a hierarchy, a language hierarchy that's institutionalized, where you have the national dominant majority ethnic language as the top language, and then you have various officially recognized minority groups, and then you have the unofficial minority groups, so the unrecognized minority groups. And so you have a very obvious cline and hierarchy that, that you're more likely, the lower you are on that hierarchy, the more likely you are to be, have your language at risk. And you know, the top level, their languages of education, of, of official business, of science, they're not at risk at all. That is a language like Thai in Thailand or Chinese in China. But the official minority languages have some kind of state support, so they get some some you know, support that helps them be maintained, but the unofficial minority languages get no such support. And those are, um, so this, all of that basically derives from 
uh, 19th century sociological theories that were adopted by Joseph Stalin and institutionalized in the Soviet Union, and then more or less adopted by those countries in Southeast Asia. So that, that's, a, that's a process of sort of official ethnicities that permeates you know, a lot of the sort of Soviet and quasi-communist uh, regimes that have existed, um, and then adopted to varying degrees in other, in other locations. I would call that scenario a neo-nationalist, internal neo-colonialist paradigm. That's what I would refer to that personally as, that other people might call that something else, but it's very much rooted in a national identity uh, and a hierarchy of languages based on that creation of a national identity where the first among equals is the ethnic majority language. Now, there are other countries that have followed that same kind of pattern, but don't have an ethnic majority per se. Actually, I, in that first paradigm, I wanted to add, there's, it's not just a European or Asian thing. So um, we find Southern Indian states where you have an, uh, a majority language ethnic group. So this would be like Tamil Nadu or Andhra Pradesh where Telugu dominates, or these, these would fall in that same category, and also Assam in the north. But in Africa, we find Botswana and Senegal also following that same kind of pattern where a majority population is taking over, has taken over the politics in a post-colonial setting and has basically replaced the European colonizers as the dominant group. That, that's effectively what's happened in those areas. And true to form, language endangerment, in, for example, in Botswana is progressing rather rapidly. Now, another sort of scenario which we find in other areas, also in, say, Africa and Asia, is again a, a neo-nationalist identity where a, a single group is being promoted, but they aren't necessarily the dominant numerically, but they are the more dominant socially group. So this would be like, for example, the uh, rise of Amharic in Ethiopia. Uh, the Oromo are actually numerically larger in Ethiopia, but the Amhara have all the power. So Amharic is the language that's, that's being the replacing and, and target language for the shift for most of the languages as opposed to Oromo. Uh, which is, as I said, actually, statistically speaking, slightly higher in the numerical reckoning of the population than the Amhara are. This would also be the, what we get in northern India in the Hindi sphere, where Hindi is rapidly expanding at the expense of other languages. There, you know, it's tied to both ethnic, neo-nationalist, and religious ideologies. Another interesting scenario you find in the Philippines and Indonesia, where they basically very explicitly in Indonesia and more recently in the Philippines created a national language, which is supposed to be de-ethnicized, but more or less took over what was the economically most powerful language. And these languages are being promoted and expanding at the expense of the minority languages. So, so in all these cases, what you're dealing with is an institutionalization of a hierarchy of, of identities. And the people who are at the lower end of the identity hierarchy basically have no choice but to assimilate and shift. And that's what the major trigger of language endangerment is, even in the colonialist scenarios, is a power imbalance between communities. And a perceived way to rectify those power imbalances is to shed one of the vectors of discrimination, that being your language. Um, because these languages are devalued um, socially and economically. And, and the main, that's, you can't change, for example, your skin color. Okay, so like racialized identities are difficult to change, but uh, you can change the language you choose to speak in public. And therefore, uh, and once these ideologies get internalized, then people want to no longer speak them in public. And you often hear, you know, we talk to, you know, we work with all kinds of indigenous communities all over the world. And, and they often say, you know, it's like, well, what's the point of teaching them blank language? They need to know this other language to get ahead socially, economically, through school, through, through 
economic opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. So the last sort of scenario that we see if we look globally is where um, post-colonial contact languages have taken over as lingua francas. So this would be like pigeonized uh, or creolized forms of English, for example, Takpisin in Papua New Guinea or Bislama uh, in Vanuatu, which these languages. So we and here what you're basically are getting are rapidly urbanizing populations in a highly multilingual setting and with traditionally fairly little access to the original standard colonial language, but what arose was this creolized form of based on the colonial languages. So this is something that we see over and over um, in various places, but I think those are the, Papua New Guinea is really a canonical instantiation of that, where um, we're finding the rapid spread of talk pissing at, at the uh, expense of the many, many hundreds, literally, of languages that are traditionally spoken in, in Papua New Guinea. Now, in terms of death scenarios, there's basically two types that we find. One is a sort of top-down, another one is a bottom-up death. The top-down is the most common one. So basically languages get restricted in their domains of use to the point where it's basically grandmothers in the kitchen talking together and nothing else. And so that, that's the scenario we find for, for most language endangerment scenarios is they get, it gets narrowed so much so that it becomes only a family language and then only a small portion of the family and then only in certain contexts. It, there may be some use of this in ritual, traditional activities, um, festivals and such, but it's often symbolic and not real as opposed to you know, active use of the language. And the other scenario, which is sort of the reverse of that is that it eroded from the bottom up. So only the very highest sort of strata are, are used the language or only the most high styles of the language are preserved. And this would be like, for example, what happened with Hebrew where it was only preserved as a liturgical language in, in the religious ceremonies. Also as in Ethiopia and um, Coptic and Egyptian scenario, these, these are, are situations where languages have died from the bottom up. So they've only been preserved basically as religious liturgical texts and uh, used in religious ceremonies and in no other contexts. And that scenario also exists in other languages that aren't written, but those are probably the three best known examples because they have this written tradition where they got institutionalized in various religious contexts and things. So um, that uh, anyway is uh, more or less my view of, of the typology of, of language death. Other people might have different views on this, but that's uh, where I see uh, as the most defensible and reasonable approaches to this. Hello there, it's good to be back. I know that this might have been a lot of information to take in all at once. So let's briefly pause here and recap. What Greg said was that language deaths can be categorized as sudden, typically following some dramatic events, or gradual. These days, gradual language death is significantly more common than the sudden one. And in one way or another, language death happens due to a relative domination of one people group over the other. Well, I suppose language death due to natural disasters occurring might be an exception to that. Anyway, be it institutionalized domination or not, be it domination of a majority or a minority, Language death typically happens as a result of power imbalances. Maybe, to a certain degree, the development of Pidgin and Creole languages that later drive other native ones to extinction could be seen as a more democratic form of language death. If you're confused by these terms, you're invited to tune into our third episode where we explain them in detail. A second way of categorizing language death is considering whether they died in a top to bottom 
or in a bottom-up kind of way. The top-to-bottom usually means that at some point there are only grandmas in their kitchen speaking it, while bottom-up talks about languages being preserved for, typically, ritual purposes, such as Latin, Greek, or Hebrew, to which we're actually going to come back later today. Okay, so let's say that we have built a kind of a map for possible scenarios of language death in our heads. Before discussing their revival, there's one question we owe ourselves the answer to. Namely, why should we care about it in the first place? Okay, the language zoo is contracting, but wouldn't it be better and easier if people of the world would speak fewer languages? Maybe that would even lead to a more peaceful and understanding society, as dreamed of by many creators of constructed languages, such as Esperanto, which we covered in our third episode. Absolutely not. The political situation in the United States suggests that a common language has absolutely no bearing on conflict or differences of opinion. That's a fallacy. The monolingual fallacy, we call that. Well, the reason that minority communities should be allowed to have these options to at least maintain their language is that there's a very real effect, a social and economic effect of instilling ethnic pride in minority groups. Okay, minority groups are often the poorest, they're often disenfranchised, and this has with it a bunch of social ills which affect the entirety of the society. So this would mean that there's you know, increased uh, drug use or drug and alcohol abuse. There's higher crime rates, higher incarceration rates, lower economic opportunities, lower economic activity. And what we see when we look at, you know, actual studies that show, you know, one group of people who've been allowed to or promote their language uh, in various, you know, institutional ways, uh, whether it's, you know, bilingual schooling or whatever it is, versus the same communities that don't get that, you see across the board increases in in the types of social demographic things that you want. That would include, like I said, higher economic growth and higher economic activity, lower incarceration and crime rates, lower drug and alcohol abuse rates. And then from a sort of meta-societal perspective, what we know is that bilingual and multilingual brains on average have onset of dementia for to four and a half years later than monolingual brains do, okay? So there's a whole knock-on effect, not only on the personal social family level, but on the state burden of taking care of more, fewer people that have those types of issues. So like from a government management and economic perspective, there's, there's literally no argument against it. And the old argument of, well, it's too expensive to maintain these languages in a digital world is not a viable or tenable position any longer because it's just as a lot of books that you buy on Amazon or whatever are on demand anyway. So like they print them and and so it's like we live in an on-demand digital world and that reality is is real. So there's no reason why these things couldn't be done for 7,000 languages as opposed to 250 languages in the world. The, the arguments against it are really are an antiquated understanding of the way that that materials and things can be promoted. Now, the thing is, is that there are economic opportunities to be had in language revitalization. So, for example, creating of audiovisual materials requires technical training. That's a transferable skill. Teacher training, that's a, that gives you not only the ability to teach your language, but to teach other things as well. So there are, there are any number of real-world economic opportunities that can be institutionalized uh, with 
with effort. And, and but again, like everything else in this world, it comes down to there's got to be some money. You need to have money to support these things. That is just the reality of everything. Is that you know? But that's the reality of literally everything. You know, the only things that don't need money is um, appreciation of nature. But you can't appreciate nature if people are tearing down nature uh, and raising forests and these kind of things. So even that requires money. Okay, so it's like there's literally nothing that doesn't come down on some level to to economics. Okay, that's as 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 harsh and unpleasant a reality as that is. That that is that is true. If a government uh, official is thinking like, what's the value of this? Long term, strategically, there is significant value in doing these things. It's just getting them to understand all of the different aspects of how that plays out over generations that would be to their advantage. And again, they can still institutionalize their own national languages, but while promoting these other ones. And that, that, that's a win-win situation, you know, to use game theory or whatever. That's a, um, that's a scenario that, that people need to, to hear. And, and, you know, there's another issue here, which I haven't uh, skirted on yet, but it's sort of been lingering, is that it's a human rights issue also. I mean, people have the right to speak their language they choose to speak in the context that the, don't affect other people's decisions. Like I said, like home languages have no effect on the broader society. Okay. That is a personal decision. That's, that's as much a personal decision as, you know, how long you wear your hair or what clothes you choose to wear or things like that. Okay. So it does not impact the broader society in any way. And if people who think it impacts them are just, you know, being weird or demented or, or intolerant. There's a moral rights issue here, a human rights issue, but a lot that that argument doesn't play with a lot of people. Let's be honest, okay. But economic issues again, and political issues do, and these also, like no one wants your you know your community to be high crime, okay. Everyone wants to live in a safe place. Maybe there are some crime syndicates that glorify violence and crime and stuff, okay. But they're very micro communities. Right. So well, maybe not everybody, but there, you know, there's most everybody uh, wants to live in a, in a place where it's safe and they feel like their children are safe and, and they have clean water. I mean, there's just certain basic realities that people want to have, even if it's not available to everybody. OK. And when you have a relatively simple thing like promoting minority languages that can have this significant knock on effects. That just seems to me like a no-brainer. Like that's where you've got to put the some efforts into it because it just is so positive. There are basically no negatives. It's, it's only negatives are from intolerance and zero-sum game ideologies of dominant populations. That's the only ne perceived negative. It's not a real negative. It's just a perceived negative. But those negative attitudes are so strong that they get internalized by the communities themselves, and then they want to abandon their points of pride. Effectively. So, you know, the, the human rights uh, argument doesn't work on everyone. The biomedical reasons might not work on everyone, the, the, but the, the economic reasons are, are, you know, pretty unassailable for most people. That's something that, that, that it comes down to. So in a social economy theory perspective, you know, there's absolutely every reason to promote it. And it does not, as I've already said, discredit nationalist ideologies either. It simply enriches them. Now, that said, there's a lot of issues here. You know, how do you revitalize a language? You know, that might be a question you'd ask. Indeed. And that's a question we will come back to. But first, let's look at the issue considering what has been said already. For now, keep in mind the idea of a zero-sum game mentality that Greg has mentioned. It will be explained and elaborated on very soon. 
As explained by Greg, promoting the use of all native languages brings wide-ranging societal and even economical benefits. But just slightly earlier, we concluded that language death typically stems from power imbalances between populations, which, at least in my eyes, is a fact of life, something we cannot run away from. Complete equality, both in opportunity and outcome, is most likely simply utopian, as illustrated by many very large-scale social experiments in the 20th century. From this stems the natural question, is it even possible to avoid language death? Well, it's possible. That's not to say that it's easy or it would have already been done across the board. Well, first of all, we know that there have been in certain places stable multilingual, you know, multi-generational stable multilingualism or bilingualism. So it is possible for, for languages to coexist. There is, it's not a zero sum game always. It's only a zero sum game because of the ideologies associated with the languages that are being dominant and being you know, advanced or, or promoted, whether de facto or institutionally through government actions and, and whatnot. That's a zero sum game mentality, okay? It's like, if you believe you're one thing, you can't believe you're another. But you can believe that you are wa, and you can believe that you're Thai at the same time. So ironically, I would say that one of the um, greatest vectors of creating real true national in a geopolitical sense identity, not sub-regional identity, because every country has sub-regional identities and those are real and salient. And you know, whether that is grounded in an ethno-linguistic identity or grounded in just a geographic identity is, but um, funnily enough, probably uh, from my observations, the most successful way of instilling national pride on the national geopolitical level is football or what we hear in America called soccer. Rallying around a national team, okay, in some countries, maybe it's cricket, you know, like in India, it would be cricket. But the reality is that that makes people proud about their country is that this is this is our country this is our our fellow countrymen and and those people can come from different ethnic groups and belong to different home languages and that does not stop them from rallying around those people when they are playing with the national colors okay and so you can be pular and senegalese at the same time okay uh and you can uh so whether or not you have to use wolof or French uh, in, in Senegal, it doesn't mean you're not Pular. These are, and you can be just as proud uh, as a Wolof person is of, of the national team. That's just an example of something that's easy for a lot of people to get their head around. There are other contexts where this is true. So, so I would say that, again, when you have a zero-sum game mentality, where there are some, if you do X, you cannot do Y. <laughs> if X, then not Y, is not a useful ideology on almost any level. And certainly when you're dealing with sociological phenomena, like identity and these type of things, then, then you have to understand that multi is good. And you can be two things at one time. You don't have to have allegiances to just one identity. And a lot of, of government officials who often come from these enfranchised groups don't understand that because they feel like, well, everyone should speak blank because I speak blank. And blank is the, the identity that is the best one here. Okay, and, and that's just, you know, just have to take, the first part of that statement might be right. Everyone maybe should speak blank, okay? But that doesn't mean they speak blank only, whatever blank is. That just means that they have to, in some contexts, speak blank. In other contexts, they don't. No one cares what language you're talking to your family at home over dinner in, okay? That doesn't affect the national identity at all. If there was a, if tolerance was promoted, 
then that is what that people would never feel like they're at odds with each other internally. In immigrant communities in the United States, people are like, oh, I'm Irish American, I'm Greek American. That's fine. Go to your celebrations, eat your, eat your you know, traditional foods, and even speak your traditional languages. That's great. Now, America is a country, of course, that has, like many, many nations, a very strong monolingual subtractive ideology. You must speak English or you're, and it's often couched in fear, you know, xenophobia, fear of, you know, what are they talking about? You know, it's not American to, to speak that or blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, you know these, these, these are just nonsensical fears that are based in xenophobia and not based in, in, in actual reality. There's no reason why you can't have multiple allegiances and identities, both of which are salient to yourself at various contexts and meaningful in different contexts. You can be deeply proud of your national identity while still maintaining the fact that you have in that national mosaic a, a particular role, a particular place. I don't know how about you, but I personally find this notion of multi-identity that Greg speaks about extremely powerful. I must admit that I myself was and still am guilty of adopting the primitive zero-sum game mentality. I suggest you take a pause here and think. Maybe adopting a multi-identity way of thinking would solve some of your personal identity conflicts. Help you place yourself better. Craft a better fitting, more accurate description of what you feel you are. We're already slowly transitioning to the topic of language revival. As Greg has mentioned, Instilling pride into lingual minorities is a brilliant place to start. But the simple answer is there's no one-size-fits-all solution, okay? So you have to understand the context of the community and the history and the, the current state of the language, the current state of the community, because different interventions or different protocols will be necessary depending on or likely to work depending on, you know, where you are on that continuum of endangerment from threatened to nearly extinct or whatever, okay, or to extinct even, or dormant or inactive. There's various terms. It's people, a lot of people don't like the term extinct uh, because it implies, uh, you know, can never come back or whatever. And with language, if it's been documented, in theory, at least it can come back. Now it's very difficult, but, you know, Hebrew shows that a language can be revitalized to be fully functional again. But in the case of Hebrew, and this is true of most of the places where you've had successful revitalization movements on a macro level, is that there is one language basically that's being promoted, often by a, through a state apparatus, and with adequate financial resources. Okay, so that's something that is true about anything. Is that unless there's will, political will, put behind it, and money put behind it, it's not likely to succeed on a macro level. But that said, some restoration of functions and some restoration of domains is still good for other languages, even if right now the current economic and political realities don't allow it to be promoted in that particular way. It doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done at all. It just means that you have to have perhaps less lofty expectations of what the at least initial activities are going to yield. But like I said, you know, like Hawaiian and Hawaii here in the US, um, well, I noticed you guys were at something to do with Cardiff, so like in Welsh and in Wales, where you have Maori in, in New Zealand, where you have actual successes of, of sort of stopping the, the shift a little bit and sort of starting it to come back a little bit. You, you have basically there's, there's both some political support and also some financial back and forth. And, and those are just realities that you know, we need to accept. 
In our third episode, we learned about the significance of the impact that language policies can have on the landscape of lingua francas. And here we bump into language politics again, this time when talking about language preservation and revival. Indeed, when researching language revival successes to cover in this episode, I encountered none that had not been driven by a political force. Let's look at one of these successes in more detail. And here I'm talking about Hebrew, that was already mentioned by Greg. Hebrew is an old, old language. It was spoken by, well, the Hebrews, or the Jews, at the times of the birth of Christ, more than 2000 years ago. Around 70 years after that, at 70 AD, the Romans sacked Jerusalem and exiled many Jews from Israel. After 65 more years, in 135 AD, after the Jewish Bar Kokhba revolt, the Romans reacted with expelling, enslaving, or killing most of the local Jews. At that point, although still lingering, Hebrew has been pretty much stamped out as a spoken language. A good example of a sudden language death that Greg told us about. The language, although dead, did not go completely extinct though. Throughout the coming millennia and a half, it remained in literary use, mostly for the purposes of religious study and ceremonies, but also for things like prose and poetry. But in those days, only a small fraction of population was literate. Hence, just like Latin, Hebrew is a case of a bottom-up language death. With the Age of Enlightenment dawning in Europe in the 17th century, polyglotism, or the ability to speak many languages, has kind of become a measure of how literate a person is. The higher classes in Europe were learning French, Italian, German, Russian, you name it. Hebrew was regarded as one of the world's classical languages, on par with Greek and Latin, and so was quite frequently taught and learned also. For example, two of the founding fathers of the US spoke Hebrew. I say spoke Hebrew here, and it's not fully correct. I should probably say read Hebrew, as it remained primarily a written language. And this persisted until the ending of the 19th century. But in the 19th century, with newly crafted concepts such as a nation at disposal, like many other European nations at the time, Jews began to cluster into nationalist movements, and Zionism has started gaining popularity both as an ideology and a political movement. Zionists believed that the Jews should re-establish a Jewish state in the Holy Land, and much of their rhetoric was centered around this idea. But there were other ideas too. One of them, of reviving Hebrew as a spoken language. Now, for the record, it was a disputed topic even amongst the Zionists. There were people in the head front of the movement who considered Hebrew to be outdated and suggested instead the adoption of Yiddish or even German as the common Jewish language. But the opponents of Hebrew revival were determined. One of them, by the name of Eliezer Yitzhak Perlman, changed his name to a more Hebrew-sounding Eliezer ben Yehuda and moved to Palestine in 1881. Together with his wife Hemda ben Yehuda, they established a first strictly Hebrew-speaking household in nearly two millennia. Soon, a son was born, ben Zion ben Yehuda, and became the first native Hebrew speaker in nearly two millennia. In 1899, Eliezer and Hemda have established a first Hebrew-speaking primary school in the area, where pupils were not only taught Hebrew, but studied all of their subjects in the language. 
Eliezer believed that to revive a language, children need to learn it and speak it in their daily lives. And soon enough that has become a reality. The Jews that were moving to Israel at the time were the most devout Zionists, who chose to abandon their lives in mostly Europe for the sake of quote-unquote reclamation of their homeland. Many of them took inspiration from Ben Yehuda family and started establishing Hebrew-speaking households themselves. In 1909, 10 years after the first Hebrew language school was founded by the Ben Yehuda family, there were already 20 of them region-wide. The language started growing. Of course, it isn't all that straightforward to take an ancient language and put it to use just like that. A National Language Council has been founded that documented the rules of the language, printed dictionaries, and probably most importantly, created new Hebrew-derived words for things like ice cream, bicycle, or a train that helped this ancient language to adapt to the realities of the 20th century. This institution still exists, although now is known as the Academy of Hebrew Language. Anyway, at that point, language revival was in full swing. Jews moving into the Promised Land would adopt Hebrew more and more frequently. By the time of the establishment of Israel in 1948, 90% of Israeli youth were already Hebrew speakers. A new flood of immigrants arrived to a country that now had a central government determined to bond them all together, and Hebrew had a large role to play in that. And all of it was taken to great lengths. Public servants were prohibited from speaking Yiddish on their shifts and had to switch to Hebrew. Schools, compulsory military service, all of it was in Hebrew. Political figures Hebraicized their names. For example, David Grün became David Ben-Gurion. Golda Meyerson became Golda Meir, etc. Now, in 2021, 53% of Israel's population speak Hebrew as their native tongue, while almost all of the rest are fluent in it. These, of course, are approximate numbers. But you get the idea. The language is very much well and alive. Having heard this language revival success story, let's think for a moment. What can we learn from this and how does this relate to what Greg has told us? To me, the biggest takeaway of the story, at least in this context, is just another enforcement of the point that Greg made, that political will and funding plays a key role in language revival. Of course, in this case, the political will on a state level only started to play a role after the establishment of Israel as a country in the mid-20th century. But Zionist movement surely had its own political traction before that. In the end, people were actively investing their money and time into resettling, establishing Hebrew schools, printing Hebrew press, founding and funding institutions. The money to do all that mostly came from the pockets of believers in the cause. And this did the trick. Before we wrap up, let's for a second Come back to where we started, the shores of the Bay of Riga, the sandy but chilly beaches of the north riddled with quirky pine trees. The Livonian language that was once spoken and relayed mother to child on these very shores is a dead language since its last native speaker died in 2013. Today, around 230 people in the world have some knowledge of Livonian, and around 40 of them speak it at the level of B1 or higher. Currently, the Livonian language revival movement 
is not being supported by the Latvian government or any other government for that matter. It is all resting on the shoulders of a few cultural organizations. One can also take a course on Livonian University of Riga in Latvia, Tartu in Estonia, or Helsinki in Finland. Will this be enough to bring the language back to life? In my humble opinion, hardly. Latvians are busy feeling Latvian, just as Lithuanians are busy feeling Lithuanian and Estonians are busy feeling Estonian. In this part of the world, a strong national identity has proven to be the only way to survive amidst centuries of occupation, and people are holding on strong to it. But this, unfortunately, sometimes leaves no breathing space for smaller languages to prosper within. And all this, at least partially, is the result of the same zero-sum game mentality that we have discussed previously. The mentality that is currently dominating when it comes to the question of national identity. Maybe, if more Latvians would stop for a moment, think, and acknowledge that they are also Livonian, the Livonian language could be spoken again, on the white sandy dunes of the pine-riddled Baltic shores. But for that to happen, Livonian language movements should get all the help in order to construct the teaching tools required for this grand job. And here, let's make another comeback to what I have mentioned previously. Remember, I told you about how Greg is the founder of the Living Tongues Institute for Endangered Languages. Well, there is something that they do, which might help many endangered and dead languages of the world, just like Livonian. Living Tongues Institute basically has three tracks. One of them is public awareness raising, like we're doing here. So promoting understanding of the issues surrounding language endangerment and the issues facing communities experiencing language endangerment and what possible solutions there are to this, okay? So that means, you know, doing interviews with the press. We, we participated in this film that was released like 12 years ago called The Linguists. And um, generally speaking, uh, you know, we've written various popular articles and things for consumption in popular science. Um, the second thing we do is, is language documentation. So that's more technical, linguistic, scientific stuff. Um, and don't really need to go into that for a general audience because it, it's a, usually a conversation ender. And then there is the supporting communities in their efforts at revitalizing and maintaining their languages. And one of the things that we've done here recently is, is develop this tool called the Living Dictionaries app, which is a freely available tool Right now, the interface is only in English, Spanish, and French, but we're working on about another two dozen languages to have it in. And this is an online or offline multimedia tool that allows you to create dictionaries and targeted lessons for communities and this kind of thing, all basically directed by communities. So you don't need to hire a linguist and you don't need to get grants and things to, to fund this. So we're basically trying to create a freely available citizen science tool that will allow all of the 7,000 plus language communities in the world to develop resources in their language in a modern way. Because one of the things that people point to as a reason why languages have run their course, so to speak, in the modern world is they don't have modern applications. They aren't usable in the, in the 21st century. And our Living Dictionaries app is showing, yes, every language is equally viable as a mode online and offline in the digital world. Okay, so that's one of the things that we've been promoting. It's essentially an attempt to trying to decolonize linguistics 
and demystify it for language communities uh, globally. And so um, by the end of 2021, we should have it in all of the sort of you know, major languages that need to have it in. And uh, hopefully people will start taking it up. We're, we're starting to promote it. We spent like three years developing this thing intensively and now it really works pretty well. We still got a couple of things to work out, but probably by spring we'll have it finished fully functional in all of its functionality. And then, you know, we'll be able to disseminate it to the world. I checked with Greg recently and the app is up and running. I will leave a link to it in the episode description. If you are worried about the fate of a language that you know, or if you know anyone who might have such a worry, point them to it. Thank you for listening. This was our fifth episode out of the six that we are preparing for the season. The sixth one will be a bit different, and I leave the discussed topic for a surprise. All our artwork was created by an inspiring artist and friend, Misha. You can find more of her work at Misha Artwork on Instagram. She sells the prints of her works on Etsy, and I genuinely recommend visiting her shop. Link in the episode description. Also, special thanks for our friend Josh Monks, who has created a good portion of our sound effects and music. Our intro piece. Joshua's creation has six distinct musical epochs fitted into one 15-second piece. It's a tremendous job. Josh is a composer and you can find more of his arrangements on his YouTube channel, link in the episode description. Now a bit farewell and tell you, as always, until soon.